Good morning, fellowship. Good to be together. Go ahead and open your Bibles. Actually, don't open your Bibles. Stand up. Stand up. We're going to read the text together as we start. And why, why are we doing this in this series? It's a reminder that we're under the authority of these words. These are the words of Jesus, the very words of Jesus Christ preserved for us for 2,000 years. And we stand as we read them together. I will read from Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. I invite you to follow along as well. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the living word of God for us today. Father, would you help us to know what it means to follow Jesus in these words? Amen. You can have a seat. As we've been discovering in this series, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did nothing less than introduce a whole new way of being human. Through the sermon, he said to his disciples, let me show you a new way. Let me show you a different way. And, and the, the way that Jesus is going to show them is completely upside down. It's upside down for them. It's upside down for the world around them. It's illogical. But Jesus is saying this is actually the path of life. It seems backwards. It seems wrong. It's actually the path of life. It's the path toward flourishing. And most importantly, Jesus is telling to his disciples, his disciples were the audience for this message. And by disciples, we don't just mean the 12. We mean the followers of Jesus, the group of men and women that were following him around, including the 12. But he's saying to that audience, this is the path I'm calling you to. Walk this path. Obey these words. In fact, the whole, the whole sermon ends at the end with the parable of, you know, building your house on the sand or on the rock. And he's saying, listen, those of you who hear my words and live them are building your house on the rock. Those of you who hear my words and don't live them are building your house on the sand. So he's saying, this is the path of life. This is the path of flourishing. And I'm opening up a brand new way of being human. And of course, Jesus didn't just teach it. He lived it. He embodied it. He blazed a trail down this new path for his entire life, and now, and, and this just strikes me as profound every time I get up here to teach, 2,000 years after Jesus was, was walking this earth in the flesh, through the same sermon, the same words of Jesus, the Spirit is calling us to follow Jesus. We are now his disciples. Okay, so when it says he called his disciples and he said to them, and these words have been preserved and the Spirit is speaking them to, through, to, to us this morning, we're the audience. I want you to feel that this morning. It really matters that you feel that this morning. And we are called to follow him down a path that looks very backwards. It looks very upside down. It looks even very foolish, particularly when we get to this text. Now, you've read it. It's in your mind. I don't know if you've really heard it in the shocking way that we need to, that we should. And, and hope, hopefully you'll get there through this message. But I want to start with this quote by John Stott. You know, John Stott was a Bible scholar, wrote a lot of good commentaries and Wonderful, wonderful man of God. Here's what he wrote about this section, this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount. 
It's the highest point in the sermon for which it is both most admired and most resented. Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. Nowhere is the distinctness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. Nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling. And I think he's right because what happens is most Christians get to this part of Jesus' words. I mean, it's, it's radical, it's challenging. They get to this part and they think, well, those words aren't for me. You might not consciously think that. You might not ever consciously say that, but this is how we live. Those words don't really apply to me. You know, Maybe Jesus lived like that. Maybe even today some super Christians <laughs> live like that. But it's definitely not a practical way to live. It's, it's definitely doesn't sound like the kind of life I really want. Someone slaps you on the cheek, you turn the other cheek, you sue you for your tunic, you give them your cloak. I mean, who wants to do this? And we even think to ourselves, I'm not even sure that this is the right way to live. Societies can't operate like this. And so we bring naturally just all these objections to the text, sometimes without even being you know, consciously thinking about it. But I think oftentimes what we really mean with all these objections is something like this. I want to believe in Jesus, but not necessarily live like Jesus. And I have to tell you very vulnerably, I am not unfamiliar with that sentiment. Believe me. But I want to call us, I want to urge us to ask ourselves this question this morning. Do we honestly believe Jesus is the path of life? Maybe you don't. And if you don't, that's okay. I want you to listen anyway. Because I think there's something here that's, that, that speaks of life, that glimpses of life that I want you to hear this morning. But if you do honestly believe that Jesus is the path of life, Let's follow him. Like, let's do it. I'm being serious. Let's actually live the words. Now, here's how I'm going to work through the text this morning. Explanation, illustration, application. Okay, now the explanation, I, we need to explain the teaching in its original context, which is what we always do here at Fellowship. Guys, it's the only way to really understand any any written thing. You got to understand the intent when it was written. That's the explanation. Number two, I'm going to illustrate it. And I'm going to spend more time on that than usual this morning. I'm going to illustrate it in two different ways because it's such a radical teaching. It doesn't make sense to us. You need to connect to it in a visual way, in almost a visceral way. And we're going to do that this morning. Then finally, we're going to apply it very individually, very personally to our lives um, and some reflection time at the end. Okay, explain, illustrate, apply. Let's start with explain. We'll put the first verse on the screen, verse 38. Um, this is Jesus' formula, by the way. You've heard it said this, but I say that. Let's look at the, the, what, what we've heard it said. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now we'll pause right there. There's another verse on the screen, but I want to just talk about 38 for a moment. Where was Jesus quoting this from? The Old Testament, the word of God. Remember, Jesus is the word made flesh. All right, so he wasn't just grabbing on to some, you know, some other cultures believe this. And by the way, this is not just in the Old Testament. It's in the Code of Hammurabi. It's in many other places. But it is for sure in God's word. The, 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 the Old Testament, the law of Moses. There are three places in the law of Moses of the Old Testament where this principle is taught. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. I'm going to read each of them. They're not the whole chapters, obviously, just a verse or two. Short passages from these. So, Because I want this to hit you. I want you to feel the weight of this, okay? Exodus 21, 23 through 25. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, 
tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Leviticus 24, 19 and 20. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Deuteronomy 19, 21. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for fit. Show no pity? Now, to our modern ears, this sounds, if I could use this word, barbaric. It sounds so detached from us. In fact, this is one of those passages in the Old Testament why a lot of people just want to just put the Old Testament in a closet somewhere and say, oh, let's just focus on the New Testament. You can't do that. There's more here that meets the eye. I want to put the words that I just read in the context of the law of Moses. When God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and he remember he, he, he pulled them out through all the 10 plagues. He brought them into the desert. We studied all this in the summer with our wilderness series. He was at that time forming them into a nation. They were not a nation when they were slaves to Egypt. They were just a, a people group, a, a family that had grown really big and they were enslaved. And he pulls them out. And he says, you're now going to be a nation. You're going to be my nation, the people of God, Israel. So what does a nation need? Well, they need law. They need a constitution. They need a form of government. That's exactly what the law of Moses was. And so he gave them the law in order to form them into a nation, give them a government, everything that comes along with that, including a system of justice. The law of Moses was essentially the constitution, in a sense, to, to put it as close as we can understand it, for the nation of Israel. And so when the law said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, I want you to think about this. It was not promoting violence. It was actually doing the opposite. It was curbing violence by establishing justice. Also, very important to understand, these words were not given to individuals to enact on their own. It wasn't a form of vigilant, whatever, you know what I'm talking about. Vigilantism. Is that right? I said it right for service. Okay. <laughs> what, what essentially God was doing is saying, listen, this is the law for the nation. This is the law for the government of the nation. If someone, you get in a fight, you know, and someone cuts off your hand because they're trying to steal your wallet or whatever, you are not to pull out your knife and cut their hand off right there on the spot. That is never the way that this law was intended to be enacted. This was a system of justice. It was a standard of justice based on the principle of equal retribution. What does that mean? You've probably heard this sentence or this phrase, let the punishment fit the crime. That's equal retribution or, or retributive justice is, is another way to talk about this. Now, I want you to think about the alternative, especially in this society where they were being called out of Egypt and, and, and where they were just in their development. The alternative is a society where someone who is harmed might seek revenge by upping the ante, by escalating the harm to greater and greater violence in this cycle that never ends. And so this law came forth to say, no, there is a limit. There's going to be equality. There's going to be fairness. There is going to be equal retribution. Now, later in Israel's history, they converted it. As they developed their government, they developed their culture based on the law of Moses, they actually converted from physical punishment to financial fines. So by the time Jesus is on the scene, it's no longer literally plucking someone's eyes out. There were fines that were established, but the principle of retributive justice or, or equal retribution was the same. Believe it or not, 
The same principle undergirds in various forms virtually all justice systems in the world today, including our own. So I want you to think about this. This is really, really important that you get this point. What Jesus is doing with his words right here is nothing short of shaking the very foundations of justice on which human society has been built for thousands of years. It's exactly what he's doing. Now, why would he do that? What was he trying to accomplish? I think that will get clearer as we dig into the text. So let's keep going. Let's now move into 39. I'll reread verse 38, and then we'll read the first half of 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, at first, I could not understand this. God is saying, do not resist evil? There's so much more. There's so much more. I want you to understand what Jesus means when he says this. It is not passive. In fact, when you just hear that phrase sitting out by itself, you know, do not resist the one who is evil, at first it just sounds like passivity, like standing there and doing nothing and watching evil do whatever it wants. And haven't we learned our lesson about that? When good people stand and do nothing, when evil, you know, you guys have heard this. There's actually... So much power in what Jesus is saying. It's, it's anything but passive. The only way you can understand it is to look at the examples that follow. Because here's Jesus' pattern in all these texts. You have heard it said this, but I say that. Now let me show you what that looks like in these three or four or five examples. So you cannot understand this phrase, do not resist the one who is evil, until you hear the examples of doing that that Jesus is going to give. You see there's nothing passive about it. They're all active. So let's keep going in the text. The second half of 39 all the way through 42. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In none of these is Jesus describing passivity. It's actually more scandalous than that. Each of these examples, this is important, is a proactive and intentional act of grace. Let's look at each really briefly. We'll keep these verses on the screen. Number one, there's five examples. Number one, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Did you notice that he said the right cheek? Why did he bother to include right cheek? You know, and by the way, when you see these little odd details in the scripture, you've got to ask why that's there because there's a reason that it's there. Most people in their culture and our culture are right-handed. If you were to get slapped by a right-handed person in the, in the normal kind of open-handed slap, it's going to go on your left cheek. You know, maybe unless some weird thing, they're slapping you from behind. But in that culture, there was an insult that was the insult of all insults. And then it wasn't what you think it might be an insult in our culture. You know, there was no, no single finger involved. It was the back of the hand. The, the backhanded slap was the insult. You would use a backhanded slap in, in order to say to someone, you are so below me, you're like my slave. You're like my servant. You slap him with the back of the hand. If you get slapped on your right cheek, it is likely coming from the back of someone's hand. It's an insult. It's mockery. It was insult to add to injury. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, rather than slapping them back and escalating the violence, and don't miss this next part, and even rather than just standing there and taking it silently, 
you go beyond passivity to turn and offer the other cheeks like here. You got this one now here. Scandalous, outrageous, shocking, doesn't even seem right. This is an act of grace. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, in those days, a man would have two primary garments. There was the undergarment, which is the tunic, you know, and covered, covered all of him, but it was the, his undergarment. Then there was the outer garment, which was the cloak or the robe. Now, the, the, the outer garment, the cloak, was the most important possession that you had. And most of these folks were very, very poor, and they would own one of these. You would not only use it as your coat when you go out to protect you from the elements, you would use it at night as a blanket to stay warm. Now, these people didn't have much for the most part. There was actually a law in, in the Mosaic law that talks about if you, you cannot sue, you cannot take someone's cloak. You cannot have their robe. That's too much. That's too far because you're essentially kind of sentencing them to death in a way from the elements, et cetera. They, they won't have the cover that they need. So they could take the tunic, but not the cloak if you're in a lawsuit. Jesus is saying, go beyond the law and give both your tunic and your cloak. He's essentially saying, just strip on down. Make yourself vulnerable. Make yourself naked, etc." This is another shocking thing for him to say. It's, it's another act of grace. And, and I hope these are bothering you a little bit. They're supposed to bother you. This is not fair. Next one. This is number three. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Okay, this one doesn't make a lot of sense until you know some history about the Roman military. You know, they had swept in. They'd conquered all these lands. They were the occupiers. They were the evil occupying military. And there was a rule according to Roman law that if a Roman soldier wanted to conscript a Jew or any other conquered people to carry his heavy pack, his military equipment, that he could just grab a, a Jew or, or someone else from the side of the road and say, you, carry this. The, the exception or the, the limitation of that was the person only had to go one mile and then they were no longer under the obligation of that law. So you can imagine these Jews, man, angry, bitter, probably cussing under their breath as they had to load these heavy packs on, go out of their way for a whole mile. As soon as they hit that mile marker, guess where that pack is going? On the dirt. They're not going to help an enemy if they don't have to. See what Jesus is saying? Do twice as much. Even though you don't have to, even though they are the enemy, they are a foreign power occupying the promised land, guys. Can you feel the shock of this? Yet another shocking act of grace. By the way, when I worked for Chick-fil-A corporate, we were thinking about how do we leverage the strengths of our organization to create a greater competitive, competitive advantage compared to our competition. And so it was about, I don't know, 2004, 2005, McDonald's had launched their Southern-style chicken sandwich. It was a direct copy of Chick-fil-A, but you know it wasn't as good. But it was a little bit of a wake-up call because it's like, it's not as good, but like there's, there's, there's nothing that, that, that McDonald's or in, any other competitor couldn't really get copy and get close to. I mean, recipes, you know, ingredients, just a secret recipe, but you can come up with something real similar. It can be duplicated, but then we realize, you know what they cannot duplicate? They cannot duplicate our people. So we're going to go all in on customer service. And this is what Chick-fil-A is legendary for this day. This is when my pleasure started coming out. This is back in the early 2000s, right? Now, you know what we called the service initiative that we trained all the people at Chick-fil-A? This is about 2005, 2006, maybe 2009 is when this initiative was rolling out. You know what we called it? Second mile service. We were sneaking this in. It was just brilliant. It's right from Matthew chapter 5. 
And, and we, we would be training and we would tell the story. We even had this cheesy video with this guy dressed up as a Roman soldier, you know, I'm not kidding, you know, carry the pack and Jesus says, go the second mile. And this is great. Now, that stuff you can't get in any other church, by the way. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Okay, let's go on. There are two more, and we're going to combine these two into this last one, verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. All the objections are going up. It's like, yeah, but what if I give to them? They're going to use the money, and they're going to you know, do all kinds of bad stuff with it, et cetera, et cetera. Listen, there's wisdom in all this. We'll talk about that a little bit at the end. But, but you have to hear the shocking gift of grace that Jesus is, is, is taking us to. Begging for money automatically puts someone in a lowered position compared to the one that they're begging from. That, that was true in Jesus' culture, true in our culture. Borrowing money indebts someone to a lender. So there's this like lowering going on and this superiority. The one that, you know, that, that's being begged from or the one that's the, the loaner is kind of the superior one. Jesus is saying, don't stand in superiority of, above people who beg from you and borrow from you. Instead, lower yourself, look them eye to eye, and share what God has given you because you don't deserve it any more than they do. Huh. Shocking. Gift of grace, gift of grace, gift of grace. And it doesn't even sound like we should use the word grace because we're like, I don't know if this is really grace. This just sounds like terrible. This is bad. Guys, the thing that bothers us about each of these is that they are unfair. And they are. And let me remind us, grace is unfair. It is unfair. So we think a society cannot operate this way. It's not practical. It doesn't even seem right. And you are correct. As long as you're talking about a merely human society. If you're talking about a human government and a human justice system, you can't implement these words of Jesus. But listen, Jesus wasn't speaking to governments. He wasn't speaking at this point in God's revelation to a system of government he was trying to create. That was Old Testament. God, through Jesus, is speaking to followers, to citizens of a new kingdom. That was the disciples, the followers. That's us. Fairness is not the operating system of the kingdom of God. Grace is. Shocking acts of grace are the norm in God's kingdom. And aren't you glad they are? Or you and I and everybody are out. Shocking gifts of grace are the norm because they reflect the heart of God himself. And this is where I think this passage will start to grab you and understanding a little bit more. Let's put the iceberg image on here. We've been using this as we go through this series. It's so helpful. What's above the line, the 10% of the iceberg? Give people what they deserve. That's human justice. Now that came from God, all right? Old Testament, human government. God is saying, listen, in this broken world where things are not the way they're supposed to be, and for a time, God, in a sense, is not on the throne. The evil one, for a time, is essentially the ruler of this earth. Here's what God said in the Old Testament. Give people what they deserve. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is human justice. This is the law of Moses. Now, Jesus shows up on the scene, and Jesus is calling people to live in a new kingdom. That's a sub-kingdom, a subset of people within the broader context of the human government at that time and our time. And this is what's below the surface of the waterline. This is what's underneath the iceberg, the other 90%. Let's go ahead and put that on the screen if we can. Here's what Jesus is saying. Give people what they don't deserve. In other words, give them God's heart. 
because God's heart is always toward giving people what they don't deserve. Inexplicable grace, life-changing mercy, love without condition. This is the law of the kingdom. Law of, of, of Israel, law of Moses. I'd even say law of humanity, law of governments. Good government, guys. Give people what they deserve. Absolutely. Be fair about it. Be equal about it. We've got some work to do in our own culture and government around this, don't we? But listen, God is saying, listen, in my kingdom, in my kingdom, it's not about giving people what they deserve. It's about giving them what they don't deserve. It's about radical grace. That's the economy of the kingdom of God. And I'm calling you, my followers, Jesus is saying, to give glimpses of this in this world that is not yet transformed. Now, how do we know? Leave that up there. How do we know that giving people what they don't deserve is God's heart? Okay, that's a legitimate question, right? Because doesn't the Bible talk about judgment and all this stuff that's to come? Yes, it does. How do we know that God's heart is giving people what they don't deserve? Because God came to earth and it's exactly what he did. Exactly what he did. He was love made flesh. He, he lived this way to the very end. And, and this is where, oh my word, this passage exploded for me this week when I realized this. Every single one of these five examples was done to Jesus Christ. Check it out. They struck him, they mocked him, they gambled away his tunic, guys. They forced him to carry a cross, they stripped him naked. When carrying that cross, what was he doing? He, he was being forced to carry the military equipment of the ones that were actually going to kill him. What did Jesus do in return? He died for them. Those people, he died for them. He prayed for his enemies. One of his last breaths, he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Who is he talking about? He was talking about the Romans that pounded the nails. He was talking about the Pharisees that conspired to, to get him there. He was talking about Pilate who washed his hands. He was talking about his disciples who fled when the going really got tough. And he was talking about you and me in 2020 and all the ways that we have failed to trust God and rejected God in our lives. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Radical grace, guys. Giving us what we don't deserve. Now, now, let me take that off the screen. I, I want you to focus back on, on our text this morning because this is challenging, right? Jesus is not saying, live this way because it makes you a better, nicer person. You know, because it's, you know, it, it's the right way to live. No, he, he's saying this, live this way because this is how God is. If you want to bear the image of God in, in, in 3D, you know, as a human being, you live this way because this is how God is. This is the character of God and you're called to represent God on the earth and invite people to experience God's kingdom through you even now. So think about this. For three years, Jesus embodied the kingdom of God. Jesus embodied God himself, God in the flesh. And he did all of this. Said, This is God's heart. You want to know God's heart? It's love in the flesh. And then after three years, Jesus died, rose again. He ascended into heaven. He says, now guess what? You are my body, church, followers, disciples. You are to be love in the flesh. You are to be the heart of God in a broken society. We are to be this radical subculture. Now that's the explanation. Oh boy, looking at my time. 
this really matters, okay? We're going to go, it's a little longer. This really matters. That's the explanation. Let me give you an illustration. Let's talk about the world's justice for a minute. All right, I've got this illustration out here that, that I think is going to really help you understand what, what I think Jesus is calling us to. Thank you, Joe. You've got two ropes. These ropes represent human lives, human beings. Let's say one rope attacks another. He's trying to rob him, and he gets in a fight, and he maims him in some significant injury way. This rope essentially is cutting off some of the life of this person over here. Now, human justice, we look at this and say, Justice must be done. Our hearts cry out for justice, and they should. We're made in the image of God. Our hearts should cry out for wholeness, and this is not whole. The problem is we cannot, we cannot heal the brokenness when someone is killed or someone is wounded or someone, you cannot fully restore them. Even if somehow you can repay them or give them some kind of compensation, you cannot heal the emotional damage. You cannot heal the, the psychological damage. The best we can do from a human justice standpoint is equal retribution. So we punish this person. Now I want you to think about this for a minute, guys. Okay, now we're, now we're even, right? Now we're equal. Do you realize what this is? What we're saying as human beings is the best we can do to move toward wholeness is equal brokenness. And so this cycle continues, you know, and, and, and now someone is hurt, wounded, and so there must be justice done. Is it justice? It's as close as we can come, but is it justice? It's not. It's not whole. We cannot make it whole. Now listen, what Jesus is saying to his disciples, and guys, it feels ridiculous and radical because it is. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, when someone wounds you, when they hurt you, when they cut you, when they insult you, when they strip you, when they sue you, when they do all of these things, here's what I want you to do. Rather than getting them back, I want you to do your part to make them whole, more whole. I want you, Jesus is saying, to give of yourself. And this is hard, just like tying this knot on this thing is hard. Oh, man. Okay, hang in there with me. You, you, see, you see what this illustration is doing. Jesus is saying, look, look, you cannot heal yourself, but you can give yourself away. Now, Ever since I started reading this text to prepare for this morning, I could not get the story of Jean Valjean out of my head. All right, and some of you know immediately, some of you don't. Uh, Valjean is a character from Victor Hugo's great novel, Les Miserables. Les Miserables? Les Miserables. Valjean is a man whose life is utterly transformed by an act of grace. That's what the whole story is about. That's, it's, it's epic, it's amazing. If you haven't read it or seen it, go and you do it. Valjean's a conflict, uh, con a con convict. He's released from a long prison sentence for stealing a loaf of bread. Shortly after he's released, he finds himself welcomed into the home of a kind bishop who offers him a meal and a warm bed. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean gets up and he starts sneaking around the house. And here's what happens next.
Is anybody there? I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver I have ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. And Valjean indeed becomes a new man. He becomes a whole man. He goes on to live a beautiful life of generosity and sacrifice. What a beautiful and powerful picture of living out this text. When we encounter this invitation of Jesus in these words, and, and that's exactly what it is, guys. For, for the followers of Jesus, this is an invitation to a whole different way of living. When we encounter this invitation of Jesus, if we're honest, the thought goes through our minds is, what about me? What about my wholeness? I don't want to eat with wooden spoons. The answer to the question, what about my wholeness? Trust God for your wholeness.
want you to think about it like this. What kind of person could live this way? Only someone who has entrusted their entire life to Jesus Christ and withheld nothing from him. Someone who heard Jesus' words in, in Luke 9, 24, it said, whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Someone who heard those words and believed them. This is where it's so important to remember that this passage, like all of the gospel, is good news, not good advice. What I mean by that is in Jesus, hear this, we all have a bishop who radically gave of himself so that you and I could become new men and new women and, and go on in turn to live beautiful lives of generosity and sacrifice in his name. True wholeness is a work that only God can do. You cannot make yourself whole. You cannot heal yourself. It's a work of new creation. God alone can make all things new. Another way to think about it. You cannot heal yourself. You cannot make yourself whole. But what you can do is entrust yourself to the whole one. Entrust yourself to the one who is about the business of making lives whole. Attach yourself to that life. Attach yourself to Jesus and say, where you go, I go, Jesus. What you say, Jesus, I do because I am with you, you see. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. We attach our lives to the Savior. As we give of ourselves, as we entrust our wholeness to Jesus, we start finding that Jesus is more than enough to make us whole. In this series, we've been applying these texts by reflecting on a thought or two or a question on the screen. We're going to do that just for a minute this morning. We're going to put these on the screen. The band can come out. And after we reflect on these, we'll sing a final song. I want you to dig into this in the next minute or two. Do I believe these words of Jesus are for me? Why or why not? I think that's a legitimate, valid question for you to wrestle with this morning. If they are for me, what is keeping me from living them? Here's a prayer you can pray. Father, I need your help to live these words of Jesus. Help me entrust my whole life to you so that I can give myself away to others. Let's reflect.